It's 2 a.m. Your patient's family wakes you up because mom has CHF again, and she's been waiting in the ED four hours for a bed, and they want to know why. Do you want to know why? You're listening to ReachMD 160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Scott Rudkin. He's a vice chair, assistant dean, and associate clinical professor of emergency medicine at the University of California, Irvine School of Medicine. Dr. Rudkin has a study recently published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine on the worsening of ED on-call coverage in California, and he's been an invited speaker at many medical conferences on emergency room overcrowding and the resultant economic and medical impact. Today we're discussing the ongoing and not yet resolved issue of emergency room overcrowding. Welcome, Dr. Rudkin. Thank you for having me here. So we've all heard more about emergency room overcrowding in the last five years than probably the entire 15 years in front of that. What's some of the reasons that it isn't getting any better, or is it? Well, I think what's happening is roughly over the past decade, we've seen EDs close. We've had a 10% decrease, at least in California, 10% close from 1992 to 2000. We also saw an increase in patients of approximately 20% from about 90 million up to 110 million. So with that increase in patients, decrease in beds, as well as decrease in reimbursements as managed care has stepped in, it's become more and more difficult to get patients cared for. So what's some of the history behind this ED overcrowding? Wasn't there a time when hospital administrators thought it was only a problem for the emergency room and now they realize it impacts everyone? Really, this issue comes into an input-throughput-output model. Really, it's supply and demand. If the system gets overwhelmed with the demand and the supply can't keep up, you have a crunch point. Through the input phase, you have a lot of patients who come in. Lots of patients realize that what can take six months to be done in an outpatient's office, we can do in six hours. So you've got the walking wounded, we call them, who come in with their insurance. You've got those without funding because of taller mandates that we must care for all patients. All these patients come in. The throughput phase, we own this part. The ED can control that part. We can get the patients cared for rapidly, but it's really the back door. If we can't place our patients, we have to board them in the ED. There are frequently nights where I have to board half my ED where I've got patients waiting to go upstairs. They've shown that actually patients who wait in the ED, they have worse outcomes. They have patient harm. You mentioned EMTALA. Remind our listeners, what is EMTALA? EMTALA is the Emergency Medicine Treatment and Active Labor Act. It was actually hidden away in the COBRA Bill of 1986. Really, this was a law that sounded good on paper. It was in a law to try to combat patient dumping. Back in the early 80s, you'd hear stories of patients being driven around trying to find a local hospital that was open. There was actually a death case back in the Midwest where a patient who had been seen earlier was brought back and the hospital refused to see the patient. What EMTALA says is that if you receive Medicare funding, which is basically every single hospital, you must accept all patients regardless of their ability to pay. And once you screen them and take care of them, once you stabilize their emergent medical condition, you can then ask them for insurance and for their cash. But until that point, you must care for them regardless of their funding. Again, on paper, it sounds great. The only problem was it's called the unfunded mandate. There's no money behind this to pay for it. So really, the feds have shifted their responsibility for this onto the states and onto the local ED docs. Now, wasn't there some changes in the interpretation of EMTALA around 2003? Unfortunately, yes. We actually thought it was going to become stronger, but in their attempt to clarify, they actually weakened it. EMTALA is very simple, and it says that you must care for all patients who hit your door. The problem is, as the 
emergency physicians, we're the experts of the first two hours of your care. If you're really sick, we can keep you alive for the first two hours. The problem is we need specialty care to help us. When I call to have someone, for instance, a hand surgeon come in to help me, he or she may not want to come in. And we thought the MTAL laws were going to become stronger to really force these folks to come in and help out. Well, really, they've softened and said they don't have as much teeth in these laws now, so there's less impact for them to come in. So now you don't have to have a hand surgeon, a plastic surgeon, et cetera, on call. Is that correct, even if you have them in your hospital? Unfortunately, yes. Luckily, I work at a level one trauma center, academic center, so I've got everything possible. But I see local hospitals around me. We get transfers left and right. And in Dimtala, is very clear, too. There is no boundary. As long as you're hurt within the U.S. boundaries, you can be in Alaska. And if they call me down here in Orange County, California, I must accept the patient. It's kind of a screwy law. But they can delay in accepting the patient, correct? Yes. What can happen is they can delay, they can play games and stuff, and it's really, it's a broken system. So looking at it nationally then, would you say ED overcrowding, even over the last five years, it's getting worse? Oh, there's no question. With fewer and fewer patients having access to care, again, we think of this as being an uninsured problem, but really, they've stayed constant. It's really more of an insured problem. As patients are more and more upset with their ability to access care, they're coming to us in more and more droves. Like I said, we've seen a rapid increase in patients, and those are really the patients who are funded. Overcrowding is coming to a point where we talk about the safety net. We are truly our choke point. We are the last bastion of care for most folks. And we've talked about this. If we have anything that could make the system worse, for instance, a flu outbreak or something, the system would come to a halt. So the payer mix doesn't make it better. If you have more insured patients or privately insured patients, you still may back up? Well, actually, from our study in both 2000 and 2006, we looked at this question. And what we found was that if a patient got hurt in an area where the hospital has mostly unfunded patients and that they're mostly black, Hispanic it doesn't make a difference what kind of insurance you have. It's very unlikely for them to have coverage. So you could have the best insurance known to man, and yet if you get hurt in an area, God forbid that you're driving your car through an area where the hospital is poor, you may not get coverage. So tell us more about hospitals closing their emergency room in California. Is that something that's at risk for being a national trend? Well, I think that we saw a phase of contraction, which, again, from about 92 to 2000, we did see about 10% closures because for the longest time, Hospital admin folks always thought about the ED as being this, you know, wasteland. Oh, those ER docs don't know what they're doing. What they found in the luck in the past five years or so is a trend that at most hospitals, more than half the admits come through the ED. They realize that actually emergency departments can be a profit center if they're run well. If they view this as a systems problem and start to cancel elective cases and really try to smooth their admits, the ED can actually become part of the whole system. And those hospitals that have actually taken this and looked again to using Brent Aslan's model about really this being a system approach, the input phase, they try to control the patients who arrive, make outpatient appointments available so the patients never have to come to us. The throughput phase, give the ED docs the tools to get the patient in and out faster, and really making sure that patients don't board both in the ED and making sure that patients upstairs have beds to go to. Those are the most important things that can be done. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD 160, the channel for medical professionals. And I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. We're speaking with Dr. Scott Rudkin, and we're discussing emergency room overcrowding as an issue that affects all of us. So tell us a little bit more about his model that you were referring to. Brent Asplund did this kind of a conceptual model, which it's very basic when you think about it, but it's actually very powerful because it breaks down a whole system's approach into three phases. You've got the input phase, throughput phase, and output phase. 
The input phase is anything that really is your demand for your services. You've got a clinic patient who can't see their doc. They're going to want to come to the ED for care. You've got patients who have no other access to care. If you can try to reduce the demand by giving patients other options of where to go, that can help the whole system out. The throughput phase is the part that we control. This is really how fast you can make your system spin. We've done a fairly good job at most EDs of making our processes efficient. We do a lot of parallel processing. We do multiple tests at one time. You don't wait for sequential testing. You try to get them worked up as rapidly as possible. The problem, though, becomes in the output phase. Really, this is the back door. We can be very efficient in that throughput phase, but if there's no place to put those patients, we quickly have our system back up, and that's when we start to board patients and have patients wait in the ED. We've had patients in the ED waiting as long as two to three days, and it's unfortunate these patients who get inferior care in the ED because our nurses are not trained for inpatient care, and these patients frequently are discharged from the ED after a three-day stay. I'm from a county hospital, and the problem is not isolated to California. It was the same in, in our facility in Miami. So in the past, we know why administrators weren't more responsive. They viewed it as an ER problem, not as their problem. But now, in this day and age, why aren't administrators getting more responsive? It's a tough nut to crack. I think what happens is you need to have a local champion. I know that our hospital, we've had several times where we've met, and it's really about culture change. It's breaking down barriers to say this is not an ED problem or an inpatient problem. It's a systems problem. You need to share this issue. We at our hospital have only recently come to grips with this problem. That's because it took us two years of really bringing folks to the table, inpatient, outpatient folks, everyone saying, listen, how are we going to fix this for the system? Once you can encourage your inpatient nurses, docs, to believe that this is a systems issue, not just an ED issue, that's step one. Once you can break down those barriers, you can look at how often do you have patients who go upstairs? How often do they effectively hide beds? As a rank and file nurse, it'd be very nice to kind of slowly clean the bed. You don't have to get a new patient. Spies to go up and look on the floors to see where their beds. Exactly. (laughs) What are the numbers on ED diversion? And remind our listeners what diversion is and what do you have at your facility? How does that input the model you just referenced? Exactly. ED diversion happens, and actually in our county, we're actually looking at a policy possibly of going to no diversion because what we found is actually patients do worse when you divert. But diversion is a case where when you're in an ED and when you're about to go down, which means basically every bed is almost full, maybe you have one or two more beds, what you will do is you'll tell the ambulances, we have no more capacity, so please go elsewhere. Well, this may make patients go, you know, five, ten miles farther to a different hospital. And occasionally, it may not be their home hospital, which makes it very hard to care for these patients. So ED diversion can run from anywhere from 10%, some hospitals, up to 70%. Some hospitals are reported being down 70% of the time that they can't accept new patients because they're chronically constipated. Does your fire rescue have permission to override diversion for cardiac arrest or certain critical situations? If there's an airway issue, they can go to local hospital regardless because they need to get the airway secured. We have actually in our county, we're one of the first counties to have a trauma system. We actually have different tiers. We frequently will go down for medical, more basic medical things, but stay open as a level one tertiary care center. We'll stay open for more advanced cases, which kind of creates an EMTAL issue too because we are selectively opening ourselves up, which can create an issue for us. So it's a real sticky issue because we're up for trauma, which means multi-system traumas. If someone's having a STEMI, we can take those folks. If they're having a stroke, we can take them. But it's creating a very weird thing where you have to be sick enough to override this diversion status. And actually, our county is looking carefully about possibly going back to a no-divert policy saying everyone is just up. You can't go down. What are the numbers? What can you share with our listeners on mortality associated with overcrowding? This is a tougher nut to crack. I've heard of anecdotal reports about patient harm happening from diversion status. I don't have any 
concrete numbers to share. Well, there's always the anecdotal reports of somebody who was in a triage area too long. Chest pain was thought to be atypical. They didn't get back and they had a cardiac arrest, correct? Oh, that is common. We've got a local sister hospital on here recently. They just had a patient who got an EKG in the waiting room, wasn't shown to a doctor, so backed up, died. I mean, there's been cases in New York. That is unfortunately such a common occurrence. We almost tuned out now. You may or may not be able to answer this, but in those cases, is the hospital found liable? From what I've heard, I can only comment on the one in California, but from what I've heard, yes. So what type of, and this may be a little global, but you certainly have experience in it, what type of changes would you ask, if you could ask, for hospital administration, for policy changes that would directly affect overcrowding? And as you said, in my experience, too, the number one example is opening up of in-house beds. But that may be that, and what else? Well, I think it's going to be even more global than this. I mean, really, it's getting the feds to get more involved and engaged. I mean, we had our ex-president Bush, who was in Texas, where he mentioned that we have universal health care. Your patients can go to your local emergency department. Fortunately, that's not the answer. We need to realize this is an unfunded mandate. They need to give us the resources and tools to really affect care. Until we can crack that big nut, I don't know what's going to really happen. But in terms of what can you do locally... Locally, I think the biggest things you can do at your own hospital is, one, engage all parties who are involved. Really, take the gloves off, talk, show that you're in as a team. It can benefit everyone. By smoothing out your flows, you can actually move more patients through your system in a unit time. People think, oh, my God, we're going to cancel a case. But they've shown that if you cancel lots of cases and smooth out your flows, you actually get more patients through your system. So from a hospital standpoint, financially, this is a smart move. In terms of nursing, Engaging them, showing them this is right for patients, and really it comes down to, as you point out, the number one thing you can do, there's only one thing you can fix, it's beds. One, boarding. Boarding in the ED. Why is it okay to board in the ED but not upstairs? Actually, in the IOM report back in 2006, this is a big thing they hit on. They said federal groups like Joint Commission need to look at this issue, and they need to get patients to board both in the ED and upstairs. A hallway bed is a hallway bed. They can go upstairs. That's step one. Step two is doing roving bed patrols, having someone else that's not a rank of nurse watching for those beds, trying to find out how long they've been open for. How can you get those beds cleaned faster, get them back open, and get more patients upstairs? Can you tell me where our listeners may go for more information? There's actually a couple sites you can go to. One of them is ASEP.org. ASEP, the American College of Emergency Physicians, has several white papers on this topic. It's a great reference. Our thanks to Dr. Scott Rudkin, who's been our guest. We've been discussing emergency room overcrowding, how it affects our practice of medicine. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD 160, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at ReachMD.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. And thank you for listening.